I'm David Sterrett. I'm the film critic of the Christian Science Monitor. I teach film at Long Island University and Columbia University. I wrote a book on Jean-Luc Godard called The Films of Jean-Luc Godard, Seeing the Invisible, and I edited a book of interviews with him called Jean-Luc Godard Interviews. Breathless was Godard's first feature film. He started producing it in 1959. It was released in 1960. Before that, he had made a few short films, but this was the first time he had been able to expand into feature length and work with a couple of really good actors, Gene Seberg and Jean-Paul Belmondo. In addition to working with Jean-Paul Belmondo, who became a very important French actor after this, uh, and Jean Seberg, who had already tried to start an American career, which didn't work out, and this was now the start of a whole new phase of her, her career, her European stardom. Uh, in addition to that, Godard also worked with the cinematographer Raoul Coutard, who remained a very close collaborator of his for many, many years and is one of the great French cinematographers and who helped to pioneer this new approach to motion picture photography where you don't just carefully light the important things in a scene and sort of let the rest of it be background, but where you try to capture characters and their environment all of a piece so that you see how they interrelate with each other. Uh, that was something that was very important to Godard and working with Coutard Tar, they really felt very much the same way about this, and they pioneered a whole new approach to the way uh, the world can be pictured through cinematography. It's also worth mentioning that the original story for Breathless was written down by Francois Truffaut, another one of the very great new wave or nouvelle vague filmmakers uh, of the period. In fact, Truffaut had really helped to get the whole movement launched. He had made a movie called The 400 Blows, Les Quatre Cents Coups, which went to the Cannes Film Festival in 1959, and Truffaut won the Best Director Prize. And this helped not only to launch Truffaut as one of the world's most important filmmakers, it launched all his friends as well, including Jean-Luc Godard. So it's very interesting that Truffaut wrote the treatment for Breathless, which Godard then went out and filmed. And after that, they stopped being so close because Godard's filmmaking kept getting more and more radical, and Truffaut, in some ways, became more conservative in his approach. In some ways, Breathless was a movie that was planned in advance. The story had been written down, not a whole detailed screenplay, but a pretty good idea of what directions the story would go in. And certainly the performers were there and they knew their characters, and so everybody went into this that they were going to make a regular movie. On the other hand, Godard was very interested in the idea of capturing things almost moment by moment with a great kind of spontaneity, a great sort of off-the-cuff feeling. I think he was influenced to a certain extent by the generation writers of America, people like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, who believed very much in spontaneous, improvised writing. Godard wanted to capture that same sort of spirit on film. So on one hand, the characters all knew what would be in a particular scene, but the exact dialogue, the things that they would exactly say and do, were often not planned so much in advance. So Godard shot whole parts of this movie without sound and was literally calling out the dialogue to the actors as the scene was going on. And they would then say the dialogue, and later the sound of their actual voices would be dubbed in after the photography was all finished. So the movie was made with that kind of spontaneous improvisational spirit, where whole parts of it are being kind of made up moment by moment within the overall framework of the story. Something similar happens with the camera work. 
Godard would put his cinematographer, Raoul Coutard, in a wheelchair or at one point in a mail cart, one of those big canvas carts where Coutard with his camera was hidden inside filming through a little hole they had cut in it so they could shoot out on the sidewalk without people realizing that they were being filmed as they walked by. And also, with the wheelchair, for example, Godard could wheel his cinematographer anywhere he wanted to. So there was this sense of everything being mobile, everything being flexible, everything being fluid, so that even though everybody knew what was going to happen within a particular scene, the moment-by-moment -moment camera work, the moment-by-moment -moment dialogue, the moment-by-moment -moment sound recording could all be completely flexible, could be mercurial, could change instant to instant and provide this feeling of spontaneity and off-the-cuff improvisation that Godard wanted to be an essential part of this movie. Breathless made a really big splash when it opened. Uh, people had never seen anything like this before. Partly, this was a result of very last-minute decisions made in the production of the movie. It came out longer than anybody really wanted it to be, I think including Godard. And so the idea came, can we make this thing shorter, tighter somehow? Godard could easily have taken out some of the long, rambling conversation scenes and made the movie shorter and tighter. What he preferred to do was to remove little bits of film from the entire movie so that the overall structure of it, the way he had edited it together when shooting was finished, would remain the same. But we would have these moments when the camera just leapt from one moment to another, from one scene to another, from one shot to another, which would increase something that had already been there, this sense of jagged, imperfect, unpolished, life-caught-on-the-run sensibility, which is the opposite of the kind of polished Hollywood filmmaking that Godard admired but wanted to move beyond. Breathless was the first of the truly radical new wave movies to get a lot of international attention. Truffaut's film, The 400 Blows, had gotten that kind of attention, but was in some ways a little bit more well-behaved. Breathless was a movie about characters who often you couldn't tell whether you liked them or whether you didn't like them, whether they were amiable rapscallions or really creepy people who you'd rather not be around. The whole cinematic style of the movie, in terms of its visuals and its sounds, had this scruffy, off-the-cuff quality of, on the one hand, being very effective and very nervous and edgy, like the characters, and got us involved in the story. In other ways, it could be boring. It could just go on and on. People would talk for much too long about nothing at all. So it was a movie that broke rules in so many different ways. At another time, the movie probably wouldn't have caught on. The movie had maybe been finished five years earlier. People just would have said, well, that's a mess, as many people did. If the movie came out 10 years later, a lot of people might have said, oh, that, people have been doing that for such a long time now. It came out at just this moment, significantly the beginning of the 1960s, just the time when Europe, Western Europe, America, and other places in the world were starting to feel the first stirrings of what would later come to be called the 60s. These desires to question received wisdom, to question the old ways of doing things, to wonder if the formulas and patterns of movie making and all kinds of art making and all kinds of social thinking were still useful or whether they were outmoded and had to be 
cast away. The sexual revolution hadn't started yet. The civil rights movement hadn't started yet. The modern feminist movement certainly hadn't started yet. None of these things were underway yet, but Western society was just starting to move into position for those things. And it was a time when a movie that came out and broke so many rules would be received with sympathy, with interest, by enough people to put it on the map and start people talking and thinking about movies and other things in new ways. Hitchcock's Psycho came out in the same year, another movie that breaks so many kinds of rules, from the editing of the famous shower murder scene to the very fact that the main character gets killed halfway through the movie. And again, at another time, people would have said, this doesn't make sense, I don't want to go see that. But it was a moment when people were just starting to be ready for this kind of thing. The impact of Breathless was enormous. Not only movie-goers, who were interested in art film took an interest in this, but movie makers took a real interest in this. And they said, there are ways you can get away from, there are ways you can go beyond the kind of polished Hollywood ways of doing things. There are ideas we can take, even from Hollywood movies, like the great film noir movies of the 40s and 50s. There are ways you can take ideas from these and push them farther and come up with a whole new way of telling stories through movies. It's much less polished, it's much more spontaneous, it's more mercurial, it's harder to figure out, it's not neat packaged and cut and dried like traditional Hollywood stuff, but it has an energy and an originality and an inventiveness that we can really do something with. So filmmakers everywhere, including Hollywood, really took notice of this movie. It had a tremendous influence. Godard has had a really interesting career. He started around the time of Breathless as an instant star among people interested in the art of cinema. From there, though, he didn't consolidate his reputation by making movies that repeated the same patterns or by retreating to a more conventional, safe kind of cinema, the way, for example, Francois Truffaut eventually did, or Claude Chabrol, another New Wave colleague, eventually did. Godard got more and more radical. He found more and more ways of challenging his audience, of challenging his critics. Well, critics don't much like to be challenged, and audiences really don't like to be challenged, generally speaking. So what Godard was doing was uh, making a more and more rarefied kind of cinema for a smaller and smaller audience. Eventually, he made an effort in the late 60s and early 70s to completely get outside the arena of commercial filmmaking. He wanted to make movies that could not be bought and sold the way objects are bought and sold, that would communicate serious ideas for serious people, and almost nobody ended up seeing those movies. Eventually, Godard returned to something a little bit closer to quote-unquote normal movie making, but he has always remained, out of all of the major figures of world cinema who have ever lived, one of the most radical, one of the most uncompromising. He is an artist who truly believes, and he has proved this through everything he's done, of following his own vision his own idea of what cinema might be, no matter how many commercial risks, or in fact, no matter how many completely uncommercial projects this is going to lead him into. He's always followed his own inner vision, almost completely without compromise.
Godard's very interested with the idea of taking story points like, say, the killing of the cop, that most movies would make a real big deal out of, uh, and just condensing them and saying, the audience will get the idea. Boom, boom, boom. We'll just give them the basics, and everybody's going to know what's going on. But then at other times, Godard will do exactly the opposite. He'll take a scene like this, which is just a couple of characters talking with each other, and stretch it out and out and out. Why don't we see, Godard was asking at this time, the things that happen in real life in the movies? What happens in real life? People walk, they talk, they hang out. So let's have that in the movies. And that's what he's doing here. He's also, of course, providing this very detailed and quite expressive portrait of Paris, where all these things are happening. Listen to the music, by the way, this very, very self-consciously melodramatic Hollywood-type movie. Ten Seconds to Hell, Jeff Chandler and Jack Palance. Again, the, 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 the self-consciously melodramatic Hollywood music, the movie poster on the wall. These are the things that Godard loves. He also loves Cahiers du Cinéma, the French film journal that Godard had been writing for, which that young woman just tried to sell a copy of to Michel. Godard is having fun with movies here. He is totally aware and wants us to be totally aware that this is a movie. This is not some sort of imitation of real life. Part of the fun of this movie is that it's about the fun and the fascination of movies. Michelle sees somebody get seriously injured, maybe killed in a little car accident there, uh, a foreboding of his own fate, and then he finds out almost instantly afterwards that the cops may be closing in on him. So uh, there's a lot of, of, of kind of predetermination that goes on in this movie. Uh, a lot of things seemed almost predestined. Uh, Michelle, throughout the film, can feel the trap tightening on him. Sometimes through a newspaper article he'll see, the cops are closing in on him. Uh, sometimes just through some kind of an indirect, almost superstitious kind of a feeling that he'll get, for example, having witnessed that accident a few moments ago. Uh, so there's a sense on the one hand that things are almost predestined. We can sense very clearly that Michelle is probably going to get caught. On the other hand, the movie revels in the sense of freedom of action that he at least wants to pretend he has during all of this. So the movie has this freewheeling style right now, the moving camera, able to go anywhere Michelle goes, and Michelle can go anywhere he wants. Yet at the same time, we have a sense that in terms of the story, things may be closing in on him. We know this is going to be a tough time for Michelle, but we're hoping we're going to have a really interesting, exciting, and even fun time going through this difficult period with him. The camera keeps moving. The camera is moving through the space the same as the character is moving through the space. Again, Godard's absolute fascination with capturing documentary reality through a kind of cinema which is at the same time very proudly artificial, very proudly stylistic. On one hand, Godard wants us to feel that we're really in a Paris office building right now. On the other hand, he wants us to feel just as strongly and just as consciously that we're really in a movie right now, that we're really watching a really energetic and interesting and expressive camera movement right now. Both those things are side by side in Godard's mind, and to him they are equally important. The camera keeps moving restlessly around as if it were an edgy friend, kind of just waiting for Michel to finish his business so they could move on. It's another way in which the camera is both a part of the story, making the story feel more real and giving it almost a documentary quality for us, and at the same time, emphasizing the fact that this is a movie, it has style, there is a camera there, there's somebody operating the camera. More of that deliberately Hollywoodish movie. And here are a couple of cops.
pretty silly looking people too, I think. Deliberate caricatures of the cops. And they are right after Michelle. In fact, they have just missed him. They give one of Michelle's aliases, Laszlo Kovacs, also the name of a very great cinematographer. So again, one of Godard's little in-jokes to remind us that this is a movie we are watching. This is a parody of a standard cop scene out of an ordinary policier. At the same time, it's moving our story ahead. Remember when you fingered your friend Bob, he says? Almost certainly a reference to uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's great film Bob le Flambeur, which is about a kind of a cat-and-mouse duel in some respects between a police officer and uh, a criminal. There will be another reference to Melville later on. In fact, we'll see Jean-Pierre Melville, the director himself, playing a bit part in Breathless. Again, the camera, edgy, restless, observing with a kind of a nervous fascination. Yeah. The woman has sparked things. And there they go, on the run after Michelle. But Michelle's doing okay at the moment. Still a nice day out. He's still in his beloved Paris. And he still thinks he might be able to get a hold of the money that he needs to be able to hook up with Patricia and get out of town and be a totally free man once again. Typical Godardian shot of the Arc de Triomphe. Everything looking so real, so vivid, so photographically precise, and at the same time, this wild cops and robbers story is going on all around us. Another one of Godard's ubiquitous movie posters, and Michel, once again, is absolutely fascinated with it. The harder they fall, and there is his beloved Bogart. And this is one of the most frequently talked about scenes out of all of new wave French cinema. The close-up of Bogart fills the screen. Michel is transfixed by it. This is his idol. So he takes a puff on his big Hollywood-type cigarette. And there comes his characteristic rubbing the thumb across the lips gesture. Michel thinks of himself as his great free spirit, but he has taken so much from the world around him, the world of pop culture. Notice how the camera there irises out in this deliberately old-fashioned gesture. Michelle looks at a poster from a classic Hollywood movie, and then as the cops hover in the background, ignorantly missing the man thereafter, Godard irises out using a gesture that goes back to the days of silent movies to remind us once again, aggressively, that this is a movie we're watching, and this movie is about the fun of movies. And we all take so much of the things that we appreciate in life from movies. Godard certainly does, just the same as Michel has taken so much of the way he presents himself to the world from the movies and the other pop culture manifestations that are around him. This is an interesting scene that people who write about Godard don't seem to mention too often. Uh, but uh, in this club, Michel goes into the men's room, and uh, I think we often think of Michel as kind of a likable scamp. You know, he's a thug, but he's one that uh, we might want to take home for dinner. He'd probably be a pretty interesting guy, but look what goes on here. I mean, this is an innocent bystander, and uh, Godard is not exactly playing up the violence of the scene, but Michelle is violently mugging and robbing uh, this poor guy. Uh, so Michelle has, has, has a genuine bad streak in him, and it's important to remember that. And now back with Patricia, as if nothing had happened. I said Michelle. On couche ensemble, soir. 
important piece of dialogue. <laughs> Can we sleep together tonight? I don't know, she says. Michelle is really after Patricia, and she obviously really likes him, and there's been something going on here for a while now, but she does not want to commit to him too totally much yet. She's not quite sure about him. And she also wants to retain her own freedom of action. Having at least the illusion of freedom of action is very important to both of these. In both cases, it's probably an illusion. Patricia has to do all kinds of things, go to the Sorbonne and all that to keep the money coming in from back home. Michelle has the cops after him half the time. Uh, there's all kinds of things that prevent them from being very free in their actions. But each one of them wants to feel, I'm a free spirit, I can do anything I want. Still, this nice long take, the camera just filming on and on and on, and we see actual bystanders. Sometimes in this film you'll see people walking down the sidewalk in the background of a scene just looking into the camera. They're quite amazed to see a camera shooting out on the streets of Paris. This, again, was one of the great uh, priorities of the new wave filmmakers, including Godard, was to get the camera out into the real world and film these fictions in the real world. Godard said that a movie is like a Mobius strip, or cinema is like a Mobius strip with one edge. When you start to film fiction, you end up realizing you film documentary because you film things in the world with your camera. When you started to film documentary, you always find out you've filmed a fiction because you've structured it. You've chosen what to shoot and what not to shoot. You've decided what order to put things in. You've decided where to begin and where to end. So even though you think you're shooting documentary, you're shooting fiction. Godard absolutely wanted to combine fiction and documentary into one seamless whole that would be both with equal uh, proudness at the same time. Here the two of them talk as they just ride down the street in a car. Every once in a while, Godard will just cut. There'll just be a cut to a different shot that's hardly different from the one before, just to make things more jagged, more nervous, more edgy, in keeping with the characters, in keeping with the nature of the story, and in keeping with the fun of cinema. You can cut in cinema, so why not cut in cinema? It's like giving rhythm to a piece of music. So notice how we have cut from several shots of Patricia here. One almost the same as the next, except for the way the sunlight is falling. There's no need for these cuts in story purposes. But they give the movie this particular kind of jagged, edgy rhythm, the same way that uh, the percussion section might be used to give a piece of music a certain kind of jagged, edgy rhythm. Wonderful overhead camera angle. Again, surprises always from one shot to the next. Degolas, a movie that is a word that comes up frequently in this movie. Disgusting is basically what it means. Again, a wonderful shot that at once portrays Patricia, shows her getting ready for her next scene within the story, uh, and can j just has a, a very striking image of a certain kind of everyday architecture. Sit down. And it leads us into this, where we see the city spread out behind Patricia and the journalist, who she's going to be having coffee with. I hope that, uh, merci. And this is just extraordinary, because we have the characters and behind them, we have the city just spread out through that window. And once again, Godard is absolutely fascinated with both. And in fact, they are not, for him, really separable. People behave the way they do partly because of the surroundings that they are in and the surroundings they've chosen to put themselves in. And here, that is Paris. 
Personne ne me verra. Je le ferai. Non, il faut faire comme les éléphants. Quand ils sont malheureux, ou le contraire, ils partent. They vanish. And here we have something that will happen very often in Godard films, simply the long conversation between two people, very often between a man and a woman. And it happens again and again in his work. Famous examples include uh, My Life to Live uh, and La Chinoise, but there's plenty of others. And uh, here we have a good example of it. It's a little less heavy and philosophical than some of these other conversations in some of these other movies. Notice again the way the camera keeps cutting, little jump cuts, as if frames had just been pulled out of the shot here and there, just almost at random, just to give it that jagged, edgy rhythm. So this is more of a casual conversation from a man who clearly has an interest in Patricia, and Patricia thinks there might be something she can gain from knowing this man. Uh, but they don't get too deep into anything. They're each keeping a little bit at a distance. You go to Orly tomorrow to interview Pavulesco. Now he's sending her off on an assignment to interview a famous novelist who's coming into town to give a press conference. It's also interesting that he is an American who Patricia is meeting. She's also American, of course. Uh, the tremendous influence of American culture on French culture, especially French popular culture, or French, especially French movie culture at this time. And Godard was strongly influenced by an enormous number of Americans. Hollywood filmmakers who he liked, obviously. Other people, too, who's interested in, I think, the Beat Generation writers had a certain strong effect on him if a kind of an indirect and oblique one. So there's a lot of American influence, and Americana will pop up in this movie more than once. Now we are back with Michel, and he's being filmed exactly the kind of way he would probably want to be filmed. Again, Godard has a lot of uh, empathy with this character. There's that very unmissable Hollywood music again coming on. Once again, everyone is out in the city so that we see the mood of the city and we see what's going on in the city. And this obviously cannot be pleasing Michelle at all. <laughs> Wonderful performance, of course, by Jean-Paul Belmondo. This was the defining performance of Belmondo's career. See the lights come on in the background? Beautiful detail that Godard is careful to include in his movie. We see just what Paris looks like when it's getting dark. And the scene fades out just as it might in a Hollywood film noir. Next day, movie music on the soundtrack, the Eiffel Tower, which has signified Paris in so many zillions of movies. Godard is not necessarily looking for originality here for its own sake. This is a movie about Paris, so you have the Eiffel Tower. He wants this movie to be different from any movie ever made before, but he knows he's working with the same ingredients that filmmakers have been working with as long as there has been cinema. Patricia, very aware of her own image, checking out her appearance, making sure that she looks the way she wants to to confront the world today. And now we have the kind of scene that Breathless uh, really surprised people with. 
Again, we've had moments in this movie that are pretty dramatic. Again, the killing of the cop is the best example so far, which are condensed into a very small period of time. Then we have scenes like this, where what sometimes has been called dead time, just the time in our days when nothing much is happening, just stretched out and out and out, because this is the sort of thing that Godard felt is what life is really about. There's Michelle's little series of three funny faces again, and now he's teaching Patricia how to do them. So much of what these characters do is posing, presenting themselves to the world in particular ways. There's his little thumb over the lips gesture once again. But these are the moments in life when things aren't really happening. People are just hanging out. They're just being together. They're waiting for it to be time to do the next thing they have to do. And this is one of the things Godard was fascinated with exploring in the movies. What would happen if you just spent a lot of time showing what people really do, how they talk to each other, how they sit with each other, how they impose on each other, how they wheedle things out of each other? And when you're dealing with performers as gifted as these, the results can be quite exhilarating. And of course, everyone's in this little Paris flat together. Godard, his cameraman, Raoul Coutard, other members of the technical crew. They're all there and they're filming this apparently very spontaneous, intimate scene. And it looks spontaneous and intimate because it's been very carefully engineered to look that way. And yet at the same time, this movie was not carefully pre-planned, and so there are real elements of improvisation and spontaneity, going, and spontaneity going on as well. Little argument about uh, that encounter yesterday between Patricia and the American journalist, and Michelle reminding her and us that his priority is to get a hold of the money he's looking for so that he can hook up with her and they can go to Rome and he'll be away from the cops and they can embark on the next phases of their lives, which we can well imagine will probably be pretty much like this phase of their lives. And she's trying to justify herself to Michelle and defend herself to Michelle a little bit, but not all that hard. She wants to get along with him. She wants him to be a boyfriend of hers, but... Uh, at the same time, she wants to maintain her own freedom of action, her own right to do what she wants. Again, the playful spontaneity of the scene. How many uh, big Hollywood stars would uh, pull the sheet over their head for a whole part of a scene? Now, some would, but a whole lot wouldn't. Uh, but this movie is not about star posing on Belmondo's part. This was the movie that defined his career. It established him as a certain kind of French character. And uh, that's because he's willing to go with the, that, that feeling of spontaneity that the movie is meant to convey to us very strongly. Here we have another instance of the movie's uh, candor about sexual matters, the nudity he sees in the magazine, which you would not have seen in a Hollywood film of the period, that's for sure. Michelle on his favorite theme, when is Patricia going to sleep with him again? And going through her pocketbook at the same time. And this is rather typical of her to say that she wants them to be like Romeo and Juliet. Uh, one of the cultural references that she frequently brings into the, the film, into her dialogue. She's a smart person. She's learned a thing or two. She has picked up a few things at the Sarbonne. She's much more uh, close to being a person with a real intellect than Michelle is. It's one of the interesting things about them. They have some things in common, 
their desire for freedom and independence and so forth, or at least for the illusion of those things. But they have things that are very different as well. The fact that uh, she's probably actually smarter than him, certainly better educated than him, but she likes that scruffiness about him. Here, he is going to strangle her if she doesn't smile. And Godard loves filming Jean Seberg, who just looks so adorable in that beautifully lighted close-up. He picks up her skirt. She slaps him in the face. This is the kind of relationship they have. It's playful. At the same time, it is a little bit edgy. Every shot here, even though they're filming under very kind of informal circumstances in the apartment with no big fancy lighting setups, Every shot is so beautifully lighted, so beautifully composed, so beautifully framed, not in an elegant sense or a self-conscious sense, in a sense that has a feeling of spontaneity, of kind of anything goes about it. But look how the lighting in the background filters in through the window and plays off the characters with the smoke and so forth. Uh, it's just beautifully done. And Raoul Cotard became a legendary cinematographer on the basis of work like this. It didn't have that carefully set-up Hollywood feel to it. It had a totally different kind of a feel. We have to spend more time figuring out for ourselves what's important in the frame. The lights are not going to pick that out for us the way they do in so many Hollywood movies. But that is exactly what gives it some of this lifelike quality and this quality, this sense of atmosphere of mood so that we really feel that we're almost in the room with these people. Very, very complex, very, very simple at the same time. There's a lot in this frame, but it's captured with a feeling of almost deliberate casualness. Just as these two talk about death, standing in this room with the sunlight outside, and they're just hanging out for a morning. So this sense of, of contrast that runs through the whole movie. It's from Switzerland. Godard was from Switzerland and uh, eventually went back there. But at this point, he's completely in love with Paris. This is an important object in the movie, this poster of a painting by Jean Renoir. Portrait of a girl. Patricia loves it a lot. I think Godard loves it a lot, too. And of course, Jean Renoir, the son of that painter, Auguste Renoir, was one of the few French filmmakers who Godard and the other New Wave filmmakers really idolized. They loved the films of Jean Renoir as they loved the paintings of Auguste Renoir. And Michel is still thinking about what concerns him most. He's not so interested in Jean Renoir or Auguste Renoir. He's interested in Jean Seberg, Patricia Franchini. When is he going to get to sleep with her again? He does have the proverbial one-track mind. Fascinating little camera movement up to this picture of somebody holding a mask in front of his face, just as the two characters are talking about lying versus truth, which coaxes some real emotion out of Patricia. Now another game. Instead of the smile game, is going to be the look-at-each-other game. And there comes his bogey gesture again rubbing his thumb over his lips. This is also something that Godard stole out of more than one old movie that he deeply admired. 
look how posed this is, how artificial this is. This doesn't look like a real kiss. It looks out of like a kiss out of some stagey Hollywood movie. And again, that is part of the fun of all this for Godard. And he signals that to us by immediately having Patricia finally put up that picture. This is a movie about people posing, about people who want to look a certain way, who want to have a certain image in the world, because they themselves want to feel that their lives are a certain way. Just as documentary and fiction are parts of the same continuum, the same loop for Godard, so appearance and reality are part of the same loop. They each define each other. Appearance defines reality just as reality defines appearance. There is the real Patricia Fankini, or is it the actress Jean Seberg, placing herself up against and comparing herself with the portrait by Auguste Renoir, all of which is being filmed by Jean-Luc Godard and his cinematographer Raoul Coutard. Reality, performance, actuality, pretense, artificiality, they're all part of the same completely inextricable web. They can't be separated from each other. And now she reveals something important. She is pregnant. Tu as très bien entendu. Allez, de qui demain? Oui, je crois. She reveals it almost casually, but it's not casual information, obviously. Michelle's response is typically sensitive. You should have been more careful. Again, all of this mixture of important stuff, I'm pregnant, what are we going to do? And casual chit-chat, when are you going to sleep with me again? How do you like my new poster? All being enacted in these long shots that go on and on in this cramped little apartment, so complexly framed and so casually lighted. It's just this great mass of contradictions. It's one of the things that makes it so fascinating, even though in story terms, not much has happened here for a really long time. Godard is, is interested in just exploring his characters, capturing the fascinating moves of his performers. He's as interested in those things as he is in moving the story forward. More interested even. Now Michelle is making a call that might advance the plot a bit, if he can find out where Baruti is and get the money that's owed him. But at the same time, we're spending at least as much time watching Patricia put on a phonograph record. Bit of literal gallows humor here. Very arbitrary cutting again. Framed in front of a mirror. Again, very characteristic for this film, which is very much about illusion, appearance, reality, actuality, and how they play off each other. The sound of the emergency siren outside. Just something that happened while the scene was being filmed outside the apartment where they were shooting it, and so it's in the movie. Again, things that a lot of directors go to a lot of trouble to set up. Godard prefers to just capture things as they happen. Hello, 
Patricia's combination of playfulness and seriousness, playing to herself in the mirror, performance, actuality. But Michelle just doesn't want to get, get out of bed. He's still got his hopes up. We've seen that move before in this movie. Little rituals of behavior. The loops that these characters are caught in that they can't get out of, no matter how much they like to think of themselves as freewheeling free spirits. Godard's camera dwelling on Seaberg a lot, but coming back to Belmondo a lot as well. Equally fascinated by both of them. Just the way they look, the way they move, the things their faces express. À New York, tu couches souvent avec tes garçons. Again, one can so easily imagine any conventional movie producer saying, "Get rid of this stuff. They've already said this stuff before." But Godard knows that this is the way people talk. There's such repetition in all of our lives, and when they're so fascinating to look at as these two are, it doesn't really matter that much that they're repeating themselves. Let's just watch them do that. Quand j'étais petite, mon père me disait toujours, on y va le samedi prochain. Il a toujours oublié. Non, le Mexique, je me défie. Je suis sûr que c'est pas tellement beau. Les gens sont tellement menteurs. C'est comme Stockholm. Tous ceux qui en reviennent disent, les Suédois sont formidables, je m'en suis envoyé trois par jour, vas-y. In his own way, Michel is being quite honest and open with Patricia. It's just that he doesn't really have a whole lot that really is interesting to say, at least not a whole lot that's really deep to say. Really a very ordinary guy in a lot of ways. What fascinates Godard is the way he tries to break out of that ordinariness by taking on these kind of pop culture characteristics, largely borrowed from the movies. And then how that facade kind of cracks sometimes when he's dealing with Patricia, who he really does like a lot. She seems somewhere between genuinely liking him and sort of studying him like, like an anthropologist. The jazz that she put on to play, serving as a beautiful accompaniment to this semi-romantic scene. She can't quite ever decide whether she really wants to be with this guy who she likes or whether she wants to keep this independence, or at least this illusion of independence, that means so much to her. Si. Non, c'est impossible. 
Je voudrais savoir ce qu'il y a derrière ton visage. He's not sure there is anything behind his face. She says she's been looking at him for 10 minutes and she knows nothing about him. What he's probably thinking is, the way I look is the way I look. Can't tell what people are inside by just looking at them. He knows that he's cultivated a certain kind of exterior appearance for the world and that it may or may not have to do with what is inside him. He's not sure there's necessarily any difference or any similarity. Exteriors are exteriors, interiors are interiors. They don't necessarily reveal each other. Or maybe they do. He's not sure. He doesn't think about these things. Pourquoi pas moi? Qu'est-ce que tu fais? J'enlève ton chandail. Pas maintenant, Michel. Oh, tu es nervante. À quoi ça rime? William Faulkner was a great favorite of Godard's. Michel has no idea what she's talking about. Have you slept with him? Tu as couché avec lui? Mais non, mon coco. And if not, then he doesn't care about him. Godard was also a great fan, specifically, of The Wild Palms, a very unconventional novel written by Faulkner. And now she wants to quote the last sentence. This is a very important bit of dialogue in Breathless. Between grief and nothing, Between grief and nothing I will take grief, says the Faulkner line. And then she says to Michelle, well, you choose. And to this great philosophical question, Michelle answers, show me your toes. <laughs> and then, of course, she keeps after him. And so he says something very important. Instead of grief, which he finds stupid, he would choose nothing. Grief, he says, is a compromise. Michel likes to think of himself as an all-or-nothing kind of guy. There she is with Michel's hat on. And again, a moment that arose spontaneously out of all of this shooting that's been going on for all these minutes, and yet look how elegant it looks. Look how perfect she looks. No fancy Hollywood lighting. No top-of-the-line Hollywood equipment. And yet these absolutely stunning images. Once again, the impossibility of knowing somebody else by just looking at them. She'd like to be called Ingrid, no doubt a reference to Ingrid Bergman, who worked for so long with Roberto Rossellini, one of Godard's great idols. And Michelle's back under the sheet again. This is Godard at his most playful. New Franco-American understanding, which consists largely of seeing these two slithering around under the sheets where we can't quite make out what's going on. Quite a disjunction here between the image and the sound, this preposterous music that comes on. All these two are still having their little playtime under the sheets. 
And Godard does something characteristic here, just moving his camera away, looking in the other direction, partly to be discreet and partly because, eh, let's see what's over there. He's fascinated by every detail of this apartment and this place and this city. Again, we have Patricia framed against her own image on the wall. The portrait versus the person. Are they the same? Are they not the same? Does one express something about the other or not? And the scene just keeps rambling on and on and on. There has been so little here that has advanced the story. It's just a chance to hang out with these two attractive, appealing, interesting, infuriating young people. That can't be stressed too much how Godard is breaking the rules of narrative here and getting away with it so brilliantly just because he's got such interesting people in such an interesting situation. Élysée, 99-84. Allô. Bonjour, madame. Michel never quite forgets his main item of business here. He's got to get a hold of that money. He's got to find Baruti, get his payment, so he can get to Rome with Patricia. Every once in a while, he remembers to come back to that. <laughs> Another really clear American movie reference. Again, Michel has taken so much of his personality as he shows it to the world. So many of his moves from the world of pop culture, especially the world of Hollywood. The conference of press was at the end, huh? No, it's at the end of the day. Again, gazing at himself in a mirror, doing some moves borrowed from somewhere else. Where are you going to this conference of press? Il faut que je passe au bureau d'abord. La campagne. Est-ce que tu as fait la guerre? Oui. Et tu faisais quoi? Je zigouillais les sentinelles. C'est quoi zigouiller? Again, a real jump cut here. Completely different pose, completely different presentation of the characters. Fatigué. And Michel says, I'm tired. I'm going to die. Just a little foreshadowing of what's to come. And another one of these fine movie kisses accompanied by that fine movie music. So artificial. This is one of the moments when Godard is emphasizing, this is a movie. And then a cut, and we're emphasizing, this is Paris. Elle est pas là, ta voiture? Oui, non, oui. Again, this good, clear, deep focus photography where everything is in focus from right up in front of the camera lens to the farthest background that we can see. Another way of always showing how characters relate to their environments and suggesting that we are shaped completely by what's around us. That the way we move is always influenced every moment by where we are, what we're doing, the people, the objects, the places around us. So we're constantly having shots like this, especially in the outdoor parts of Breathless, where we see so much of the surroundings of the characters, where the figure and the environment 
are perceived as being completely interrelated with each other. And then we can also move right back instantly into a tiny claustrophobic space like this, where characters are going to relate to each other in a completely different way. Again, jump cuts to convey the action in an incredibly economical way. Bum, 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 bum. Incident, 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 incident. No wasted time at all. So that we can then spend more time doing what's more interesting, which is just looking at Patricia's face and seeing how Michelle looks as he opens the car door for her and seeing how they look as a couple just gliding down the street in the convertible. She doesn't just want a dress, she wants a Dior dress. Again, they're very, very much involved in buying into the society around them, as much as they'd like to think of themselves as being these free-willing, free spirits. His picture's in the paper. The cops are closing in. They haven't found him yet, but that is Jean-Luc Godard. That bystander there <laughs> in his dark glasses seeing Michel's picture in the paper is Godard who made this film. And so what will Godard do next? Take another good look. And turn him in right away. So here we have Godard himself and calling very close attention to himself with yet another iris shot with the camera irising out that utterly artificial, self-conscious, conspicuously cinematic, old-fashioned move to call attention to Godard casting himself as the guy who puts the cops even closer on Michelle's trail than they already were. Michelle has no idea what's going on. He's busy being goofy and doing his Bogart move. Now we have the press conference that Patricia has finally gotten to Orly Airport to cover, and the novelist is played by Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, a very, very great French filmmaker who uh, had made movies like uh, Bob Le Flambeur uh, and a few others that had influenced Godard enormously, that Godard really loved a lot. In fact, uh, Melville's own films uh, were important precursors of the New Wave movement. They had that sense of energy and spontaneity and, and, and humor that the great new wave films would often have. And having him play this small role in the movie of the novelist is a direct homage by Godard to Melville. 
Il n'y a aucun rapport entre la femme française et la femme américaine. There are women participating in this press conference, but the attitude of the novelist seems to be very old-fashioned male chauvinist. Monsieur Fabulesco, quelle est votre grande ambition? Good question. What's your greatest ambition in life? But he refuses to answer it at first. He will answer it in a moment. La femme qui trahit. But it's interesting how he feels free to ignore Patricia completely until he feels like answering. This is actually quite a Godardian thing to say. Love and eroticism are basically forms of each other. What a condescending, patronizing answer. <laughs> but she doesn't seem to mind. She is so much a young woman of her time and place. The fact that he answered her at all seems to be enough for her. By later standards, this would not uh, pass muster, but at that time it did. Here we have the novelist making a similar gesture with his fingers to one that Michelle had made a little earlier. Men are all alike, it seems, in this movie. The important novelist, the petty gangster, they're basically the same. Godard also seems to be fascinated with the mechanics of the press conference. And that question, do you like Brahms, is a very nouvelle vague question. They like to look at filmmakers as if they were like the great composers, so that you could say, do you like Renoir, the same way you'd say, do you like Beethoven? Do you like Wells, the same way you would say, do you like Brahms? So that was part of the agenda of the new wave, to have filmmaking taken more seriously as an art. Finally, the novelist has answered Patricia's question, what's your greatest ambition? He says to become immortal and then to die. A fascinatingly contradictory, self-contradictory answer. And it sums up a lot of the contradictions that go on within this movie. People in this film are continually contradicting themselves. They're being charming and ruthless. They're being attractive and repellent. They're being energetic and lazy. Same personalities are being the same self-contradictory self things all the time. In a similar way that this movie is constantly being documentary reality and flamboyant fiction, moment by moment, oscillating between them and very often being both at once. Here, for example, we have a real crime movie scene filmed against an utterly real background. So we have fact and fiction intermingled with each other. They can't be separated from each other. Michel always seems to be just about to get his hands on that money that he so desperately needs. And the cops forever seem to be not quite on top of him right now, but always with the possibility of getting closer and closer moment by moment.
automobiles are hugely important objects in Godard's films, and it's not a surprise or a coincidence that Breathless is absolutely full of automobiles. For Godard, they're symbols of freedom, of our ability to move where we want to move, to go where we want to go. They're also the ultimate symbols of capitalism, of acquisitiveness, of having to accumulate money in order to have just the basics of life, like the ability to move around where we want to. So again, a very conflicted, multifaceted view of these universal symbols of modern life. And they show up everywhere in Godard films. And they serve an enormously complex cluster of different functions within those films. Godard called Breathless an anarchist film. Here we see a little anarchism in action. Michel will do whatever he needs to do to get what he wants at the same time saying that his freedom is the most important value of all. A lot of people were outraged when Godard called this an anarchist film because some people did not see Godard as a progressive anarchist who really wanted to increase human freedom. Some people saw him and his character, Michel, as uh, people who only cared about their own little freedom without particularly caring about other people's freedom. So there's a lot of controversy around that at the time that Breathless was released. Godard said this is an anarchist film and Michel is an anarchist hero, apparently meaning to indicate that they were people who were questioning the rules of bourgeois society, the rules of ordinary everyday society that we so desperately need to question. But some other people said, no, 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 he's an anarchist in the sense of selfishness, wanting to obliterate the rules only because they get in the way of his own self-gratification. And um, there was a lot of argument about that. At one point in the movie, Michelle says he kind of likes cops. And somebody said that was an indication that Godard was not being a progressive kind of anarchist, that in fact he was being a regressive, reactionary kind of anarchist, not caring about authority as long as authority doesn't get in his way. These are still issues that are talked about with regard to Breathless. That last shot, by the way, when he walks such a distance from the car and then comes back and we see the whole thing from a vantage point within the car, uh, was very possibly an homage to Joseph H. Lewis's great movie, Gun Crazy, where we have a bank robbery film from the backseat of a car. Once again, arbitrary cuts. There's no need for these cuts from one shot to another. Each shot shows almost the identical thing, the back of the driver's head. But for Godard, it gives rhythm to the film. Once again, it's happening here in the backseat. And it reminds us that we're watching a movie. It has that effect of preventing us from getting swept away by the story, caught up in the fiction, the way that ordinary Hollywood movies so often want us to do. It throws us out of the movie so that we're thinking about the movie, so that we're watching these characters along with Godard, knowing that they're fictional characters at the same time that we realize that they express things about the world we actually live in. Godard was very strongly influenced by the great German playwright Bertolt Brecht, who wanted to accomplish exactly that, who wanted people not to be absorbed in the story in a psychological way, wanted people to be thinking about the story in an intellectual way. That way you can have a dialogue with the work of art. You can think about the world that produced that work of art and whether you might want to change that world. And even in a fairly early film like Breathless, a very early film like Breathless, where Godard has not yet become the kind of fully committed political filmmaker that he will become a few years later, he's very interested in that idea. 
of not letting us get caught up in the movie as if it were reality, always wanting us to remember that it is a movie so that we can be not just psychologically absorbed in it, but can be intellectually and psychologically thinking about it. We're watching these characters right along with Godard. He's having a little dialogue with us about these characters, and we're free to agree or disagree with his point of view at any moment, because we're not just being manipulated by him. We are watching the movie along with him. We're watching the characters along with him, the same as we're watching these absurd cops scurry up again outside the window. Well, the cops are clearly getting close to Michelle because they are right under Patricia's nose right now. Oh, you're an incredibly arrogant man. Miss Yes? I'll see you later. Yes? She's true to her man. She lies to protect him. Ah, but as soon as she's pressured a tiny little bit, oh, yeah, 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 that's him. Again, see how this is shot with the casual passers-by just moving back and forth outside the window? They would have been eliminated from this shot in any standard Hollywood movie. But Godard just loves them because they're part of the real Paris atmosphere that documentary quality that's central to this movie. And there she is with her charming smile, giving a phony story. She's perfectly willing to protect Michelle as far as she feels she can get away with without getting into trouble herself. And the cops know exactly how to make her squirm. No, I don't. Yes. Danton. Very interesting <laughs> name to be injected here. Godard is very aware of French history and its interactions with current-day French sensibilities. This is so movie-ish. Again, this is Godard just having fun with the conventions of the old-fashioned policier, the old-fashioned cops and robbers movie. Michel hiding behind his newspaper, behind his comic strip, while the cops slink behind doors and lurk. Very articulately edited exchange of glances here. Very, very artificial, very, very movie-ish. Great fun, and at the same time, truly suspenseful. close-ups. It's like a Samuel Fuller movie, another filmmaker Godard admired a lot. And now back to long shots again. And this is quite remarkable. Very elegantly choreographed by Godard.
Godard actually got some footage here that had world leaders in this parade in the same shot as his own characters, but he ran into a lot of trouble when he wanted to include them in the finished movie. Some people felt that his merging of reality in the sense of the reality of world politics with his own crime story fiction was just too uncomfortable, a little too close for comfort. But Godard, of course, was absolutely fascinated with accomplishing exactly this sort of thing, having all this movie-ish business here. Again, people slinking along, following each other, and hiding behind newspapers and running into movie theaters to get away, all of which has this real, actual parade that just happened to be going on in Paris that day, going on right behind it. And now, as will happen so often in Godard films, people find themselves in a movie theater. You won't let me tell it. You think I'm lying. Watching an American movie. Again, all this is Godard's semi-parody of exactly the sort of thing that he and we had seen in zillions of B-movies from Hollywood and elsewhere. The escape out the window. And back with her boyfriend. C'est pour ça tu disais jouer qui toi double tout à l'heure. Oui, un peu pour ça. Allons voir le western au Napoléon. Oui, vous m'y attendez que la nuit tombe. Gunshots. And another one of these deliriously artificial poses that Godard loves so much. The guy and the girl, kissing. It's a movie shot, it's not realistic passion. It's the way gorgeous young people look in the movies. He celebrates that. <laughs> one of his cool guy moves doesn't work too well, flips his coin, but can't quite keep a grasp on it. Paris looking very dramatic here by night. And as we see the net is tightening, another way of signaling narrative information very efficiently, very economically. Again, the city passes by outside the car windows in deep focus and is as interesting as anything else that's going on in the scene. Patricia, je voudrais te caresser. Parle-moi, quoi. Ça, alors. Quoi? Tu es marié. Montre. A little more narrative information. Michelle does have his secrets. He was married. His characters are full of contradictions. They're not always dramatic contradictions, but Godard loves everything that just doesn't seem to fit with everything else because that's the way life is. It's not a neat Hollywood thing. It's much more scattered. Hard to figure out than that. Informers inform, burglars burgle, murderers murder, lovers love. So says Michelle. It's like a, a catalog of behaviors. You just do what you do. People do what is built into them. And that's the way he is. And he's realizing that for a moment. He's not the 
the great freewheeling, free-ranging, free spirit that he thought he was. He's a type of personality, and he will do some things because that's the way people are built. And we'll find out one of the ramifications of that when we see what Patricia's final major act in the movie is. She does what she has to do. It may or may not make sense. It's just what she has to do. Again, Godard having a wonderful time putting the camera in the car, getting shots that way, contributes to that sense of freedom of movement that the movie itself has throughout. Amazing lighting effects, just filming in the streets at night. Far more dramatic than a lot of the stuff that Hollywood cooks up with all of its high-tech equipment and fancy stage setups. Oula. Michel, qui est-ce? Accélère, Minouche. Qu'est-ce que c'est, Minouche? Again, a very dramatic camera angle. Gerard always seeking to revivify the visual interest of the film. Little surprises, little jolts, little shocks. Sometimes in the story, sometimes just in the way the camera suddenly moves or positions itself. As much as Michel tries to be the coolest guy around, people can still find fault with the way he dresses. He has a small-time hood. Finally, Baruti who Michelle and we have been looking for throughout the movie. Photography, always a double-edged sword in Godard's view. It can capture truth, but at the same time, it can totally deceive us. And again, the meaningful exchanges of glances that go on so frequently in this movie and in other Godard films. When he wants to, he can tell a story very, very crisply and effectively in visual terms, move the story right along, convey enormous amounts of narrative and psychological information, and then slow everything down and then return us to a recurrent theme, like the Bogart thumb over lips. Yeah. 
peut t'appeler où demain Je ne sais pas. Tous les hôtels sont complets avec ces comptes touristes. On ne sait pas où aller. Mais pas à Again, the little jump cuts. Just one continuous shot of Patricia, but frames just pulled out of it to give it that jumpy, edgy quality. To just infuse the film with a kind of random energy. It doesn't have to make sense. That energy is just part of the atmosphere, part of the environment. And Godard doesn't just show us that. He makes, it, he makes us feel it through the very way he's constructed the movie itself. More of our Hollywood jazz on the soundtrack. And we're entering one of the last major locations of the film. This very unusual apartment where, again, photography turns out to be a main activity. Photography with, to Godard is a way of capturing reality because it's an automatic process that just captures the appearances of the real world through photochemistry. At the same time, it's an act of commerce because people in the contemporary world spend enormous amounts of time and energy and money buying and selling images of all kinds of different things. And at the same time, it's a way for expressing real ideas about life. In Godard's hands, it's a philosophical medium. It's a very telling shot of Michel half looking at the world and half hiding from it behind his shades. A good metaphor, again, for this uh, idea of photography and all the different things it can mean in the world we live in. And here's their hideout. Another very typical Godardian high culture reference. He loves his pop culture, but he loves his official traditional culture as well. As the years go by, Godard will get more and more interested in high culture, in traditional culture, in the great monuments of European culture. At this time, though, in his career, it's there, but it's nestled right side by side with this profound fascination for pop culture as well. Patricia looks into the camera briefly, again, something forbidden in traditional Hollywood movie making. Fascinating shot of the real Patricia up against that large photographic picture in the background. Again, representation and actuality playing off against each other in visually energetic ways. Again, nice long take. The camera just goes on and on and on. When Godard isn't busy jump cutting, pulling frames out and leaping from one place to another, one shot to another, he's letting the camera go on and on and on. Patricia comes back to have just one more look at Michelle, the same way that Godard's camera is just looking and looking and looking at these characters at that moment. Big moment in the movie. Michelle phones the cops at that Danton number. She has not had a quarrel with Michelle. They're not angry at each other. 
She hasn't decided she wants her life to go in some completely different direction. She has just decided to call the cops and tell where Michelle is. Why is she doing this? That's been debated since the first day this movie opened. She does it because maybe of what Michelle said before. Burglars burgle, killers kill, squealers squeal. Well, whatever it is that Patricia is, she just did what it is that she does. <laughs> maybe that's the best it can be expressed. Is there something inside Patricia that suddenly burst forth and made her do that, turning in her boyfriend for no reason at all? Or did she decide to do that, and that is now going to make her into a different kind of person? And she always wants to be changing. She never wants to be pinned down. Does something inside us determine our behaviors, or are we defined and determined by our behaviors? These are big philosophical questions, and they're exactly the things that Godard is with, fascinated with in this and many others of his films. If somebody does something that appears to be arbitrary or irrational, is it because there's something inside the person that's making them do that? Or are they doing that because they want to be different? It's an unanswerable question to Godard. All we can do is observe it and be fascinated by it. Now she has told Michelle that she turned him in. Does Michelle run? Does he leap into a stolen car and get out of the city? No, he doesn't. Why not? Because that's the way he is. And again, instead of racing the story ahead at this time, Godard pauses for another one of his long, continuous shots with characters just talking and talking and talking. She stayed to find out whether she was in love with Michelle or not. In other words, she behaved a certain way to find out something about herself. And she found out that she would treat him badly, and so now she knows whether she loved him or not. Apparently, she doesn't love him. It's this paradox. We like to think that we have a certain personality that leads us to do certain things. But maybe, in fact, we do certain things, and then we find out what kind of personality we have. These are the philosophical questions that Godard is examining, the existential questions that Godard is examining through this story and through things like this beautiful long tracking shot where we just stay on the character and listen to her while she rambles on. And she, in fact, is listening to her own words to figure out what it is that's going on inside her. Exterior and interior, the way we behave to the outside world, the way we feel we are within ourselves are as much part of the same loop, the same continuum as documentary and fiction as environment and individual person. Now the camera is switched from her to Michelle, and we're just following him around, listening to him talk to himself, and try to figure things out by listening to his own words. Again, he's not racing out of the city. He knows that Patricia just called the cops on him. Why isn't he racing to get away? Maybe he's just tired. So he says, he's exhausted. He wants to go to prison. The title of this film, Breathless, in French, of course, is A bout de souffle, which means at the end of breath. It doesn't just mean 
nervous. It also means exhausted. Not physically exhausted. He's not physically exhausted. He can run down the street and get the money. Mentally exhausted, maybe spiritually exhausted. Maybe he's at the end of his spiritual breath. A key line, and everybody says, just as Patricia just said to him, you're crazy. He says no. He's just in love, and he's just tired. Now for the extraordinary ending of the film. Somebody else throws him the gun, he picks it up, and that's the end of him. And then this extraordinary shot, it's not the glamorous death of the Hollywood cops and robbers movie. It's not the glamorous death of an actor who loves to do the big death scene and get us all wrenching around in our seats and shedding tears of empathy and sympathy. It's absurd. It's an absurdist death scene. He can't stand up and he can't fall down. He can't give up and he can't get away. And Patricia, who just turned him in, is chasing him as hard as she can down the street, as is the camera. And all the while, that movie-ish music playing on the soundtrack. And of course, we may be looking right now through the eyes of the woman who turned him in for absolutely no reason at all, even though she kind of thought she might be turning out to be in love with him. The last puff of melodramatic smoke wafting from his mouth as he's about to expire. The bystanders stand by. Patricia is obviously very conflicted with emotion over what she has caused. And what does he do with his dying moments? He makes his funny faces, his serious little poses, his little exercises as to different ways one might prevent, present oneself to the world. It's really disgusting, he says, and then closes his own eyes. And Patricia, who is American, seems to speak French okay, has to ask, what did he say? She looks right into the camera, right at us, breaking again all those rules of Hollywood filmmaking, makes Michelle's Humphrey Bogart gesture. The music plays poignantly on the soundtrack. We don't know what to make of her. She doesn't know what to make of us. And so she turns her head in the opposite direction, and we fade to black. And we'll have to think about this as long as we want. <laughs>